Okay, welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Uh, with me today, as usual, is our producer and friend, Hugo Lindgren. And we are also joined by Michaela Balderson, who listeners to this podcast uh, are well familiar with. Michaela is the head of communications for Tusk Holdings um, and a very trenchant political observer. Uh, and we asked her to join us today on the podcast. So welcome, guys. Thanks for having me. I was nice waiting for you, Michaela, but I'm now going to jump in. Hi, hi, Michaela. Hi, Bradley. Hi, Hugo. <laughs> okay, we've established, we've all said hello to each other, which probably annoyed the listeners. Um, so, uh, Hugo, what are we talking about? Well, the main thing we we're going to talk about, one of the one of the reasons we wanted Michaela to come on was because we're going to we had a discussion last week about the um, about the election results and and we focused you know pretty much straight on the politics of it. Um, and what we didn't get to last week was the, the sort of tech angle, which is obviously a big part of what we do here in the podcast and also something that Michaela, um, has a lot of insight into. So that's why we brought her in and, and, um, and we have a few basic questions, but Bradley, I want to start with one thing because it continues a conversation we've been having, which is you've been, uh, you sort of pinpointed the kind of Christmas, uh, problem as a, as, as a major issue for, for Biden. If he, if he blows Christmas and people can't get the presents they want that like almost nothing else he does is going to matter. So today in the wall street journal, keep in mind yesterday, USA today had him at a 38% approval rating. Right. So it's, he's already hitting close to rock bottom. I think the only president in modern history to be lower than that is Trump from what I read. Right. So he's basically the Grinch already. Even he hasn't lost Christmas, but already he's the Grinch. Yeah. And like, amazingly, the rest of the country is not so riveted by what's happening in Washington that passing the infrastructure bill didn't radically change everything overnight. But if they're not if they're not so interested, why are they so so pessimistic about him? I want to get to that in a minute, but I want to tell you about the Thanksgiving thing and then we'll move yeah. on. Okay. Just, I'm just going to read the quick quote because it's it's terrifying. Many holiday essentials, including turkeys, cranberry sauce and pies are already in short supply. Think about that. Yeah, I ordered our turkey already for that reason. Um, but you're getting like some probably free range turkey upstate, right? Some fancy turkey. I don't know if it's fancy because the, the, the place we buy it from, it's an interesting place. It's called Quattro's Farm Store. It's in Pleasant Valley, New York. And it is a gun store and a, a butcher and grocery, like small grocery, Italian grocery store, uh, all in one place. So no, that doesn't sound fancy, but they but they have amazing poultry, especially nice. Michaela, do you have your turkey? You know, I don't think it comes as a surprise to no one. I'm not in the cook in my family. So okay. I did send the Wall Street Journal article to my mother this morning, though, to, to flag that because I do eat the turkey. <laughs> I just we, don't cook it. We do have a controversy in the Tuss Montgomery household, which is last year we ordered a turducken. Um, which Lyle and I quite enjoyed and everyone else wasn't really into. And so Harper nixed it for this year. So Lyle at the moment is protesting, but uh, I suspect he'll get over it. Bradley, I'm a little surprised that it took you this long to get to a turducken. I would have thought you'd have done that years oh, ago. <laughs> oh, I did. I had my first turducken. I remember this. It was the year Abby was born because we couldn't go over Thanksgiving because she was so little. Uh, and that was 2006. So I, I'm, I'm a turducken veteran, uh, but hadn't done it in a while. And it's right. what is it? I know what a turducken sounds like, but is it literally the same? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a chicken stuffed inside a duck stuffed inside a turkey with oh. like layers of like dressing in between and things like that. Um, it's a Cajun dish and you can just go. There's a bunch of different kind of websites that will ship them to you. Um, I've never had one like other than chip. So maybe if you're in, you know, Sh Shreveport or something and you have it, you know, live on Thanksgiving, <laughs> it's even better. Um, but it's still pretty good. Wow. Um, I think I'm, I've never had a turducken and I, 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 it, 
I didn't have it. Didn't never sounded quite as good as you just made it sound. I have to say, Bradley. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna investigate for this year. Um, maybe you should do like a like a Tusk Ventures Tusk Holdings kind of thing where you get everybody a turducken for Turkey for for Thanksgiving. Would that be fun? Yeah, I don't I don't know how much of our you know either constituency would want it, but sure. Uh, you know, I, I'm look. I definitely fancy myself as the kind of guy that would like pull up a big truck and open up the back of it and hand out turkeys to people. So. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. That's how I see you as well. Yeah. Um, Jack let, yeah. Let's talk about the tech results. Um, uh, we're just going to we're going to run through three, three sort of quick questions on, on last week. First, the, um, you know, one of the big issues that's out there, we've talked about many times uh, on the on the podcast is the sort of potential repeal of Section 230. You know, based on, on what we know from last week, is that looking more likely, less likely anything changed there? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because overall, if you take a, a look at last week, um, it was probably a good week for regulation if you are big tech. So if you're Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, uh, the left getting pounded uh, was good for you because it just weakens them significantly and in their influence uh, and how seriously people take them. Um, on the flip side, if you are a startup and you want to compete with those companies, uh, last week was bad for you because um, even though I don't always agree with people like Elizabeth Warren, uh, I think her basic premise, which is these you know half a dozen mega companies are really stifling innovation and competition, is absolutely right. Uh, so you know I think last week was probably bad if you are a fan of repealing Section 230, which would give the platforms now remove their immunity from liability for what's posted on the platform or for uh, a national privacy framework or for antitrust uh, kind of advancement. Do you think, though, that that the federal government uh, in particular can do something that really uh, that really impacts big tech and doesn't also kind of screw up the kind of tech ecosystem for for smaller companies as well it seems like it seems like a big intervention is going to be is going to be troubling for for not just the big companies uh, no no I don't think so because I, I think right now when I look at early stage companies and you know we invest in seed and series a so not the earliest stage but pretty early um, I have to f- be convinced that there is a really good exit possibility. And if, if their success means beating one of those giant companies at their own game, that's a tough bet to make. Not impossible. And obviously with Exalt, we're, we're trying that right now. Um, but, but it is harder. And if, if those companies had less ability um, to use anti-competitive behavior to stop new competition, then I, th- I think I would be more likely to make investments in, in some of their competitors, uh, which would help innovation. What about the sort of state and local uh, framework for tech? The, another big subject we've talked about is worker classification. Um, is that going to be a bit tougher? Is that is that a is that an area where where politicians feel emboldened? You know, I think generally speaking, if the message from last week is that the left has far overreached and that the Democratic Party has capitulated to the left far too much that weakens the left's kind of influence across the board. So, for example, one issue that we talk about a lot in this podcast and, and is expected to be a major issue in state legislative sessions this year is worker classification reform and whether people like Uber drivers or DoorDash delivery people should be full-time employees or independent contractors. The momentum had been shifting slightly back towards the full-time employee kind of left-wing version of this. Um, Sharing economy companies obviously wanted to remain independent contractor. They probably benefited a little bit 
um, by the Youngkin victory, by Murphy having such a close call, uh, and generally speaking, just sort of a, a drubbing of the left. Um, and then on the municipal level, a, a little less ideological, but you know, one piece of very good news if you are a tech fan and proponent is you know, we've had for the last eight years an incredibly anti-tech, you know, almost Luddite mayor and Bill de Blasio in New York City who prides himself on using a flip phone. Um, and we're placing him with Eric Adams, who is very pro-tech, uh, said yesterday he wants to teach blockchain and crypto in the schools, um, and I think will be a, a massive upgrade for the tech community um, from what we've had for the last eight years. So, you know, he won on uh, last week as well, and so that was a good sign. Um, Michaela, you spent a lot of time talking to reporters. Um, is this is this a question that 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 has come up? I mean, what what are what are the tech reporters talking about in terms of um, in terms of the uh, in terms of last week and 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 what we learned about the sort of near term for for the tech industry? Yeah, I think the the elections were more localized and and everyone was kind of focusing on what does this mean overall for Republicans, Democrats, you know, for next year's elections, congressional elections, the next presidential elections. You know, I think Bradley was talking about work classification and, and overall tech, but I really do, I do think it depends what market you're in. You know, if you're Mayor Suarez and you're in Miami, um, and you've made the argument of bringing job, you know, tech brings jobs there. It's good for the economy. You know, I would I think it's good for tech there because he's going to continue to belabor that point and take it up as an issue and want to be on the forefront of it. If you're in Virginia, where I happen to be from um, and you're just bought and you're a Democrat and you're bottoming out with white rural voters. And I think technology has generally um, been portrayed as a negative for for rural constituents um, taking away jobs and things like that. I'm not sure that I would take up tech and, and make that the focal point of my future campaigns. I would probably put it on the back burner um, and focus on other issues. So I think it's probably, you know, just generally for tech, um, it's probably worse than some of these in areas that are focused on rural voters. Uh -huh. um, but I think in urban areas, it's a positive. Um, Bradley, you mentioned Elizabeth Warren. Um, the the new uh, the newly elected mayor of uh, Boston Michelle Wu is a is a um, Elizabeth Warren protege um, is that is that good for tech in in, in Boston and and no I mean it's look it's it's a good question no it's probably more bad than good so on one hand while I think Elizabeth Warren's views on tech are good when it comes to sort of the, the giant companies and breaking up their power and not allowing them to stifle innovation among earlier stage startups uh, on a municipal level you're not dealing with antitrust or section 230 or privacy regulatory frameworks you're dealing with you know permits on things like e-scooters or you know ride sharing or airbnb and things like that so if you are kind of have that ad adopt that reflexive anti-tech uh, perspective of the far left and of the elizabeth warren acolytes um, on local issues you are probably more likely to be negative so uh, while New York gained by switching from de Blasio to Adams, um, Boston probably lost a little bit by by uh, their new election from a tech perspective. Mikhail, you're from Virginia, but you're obviously a New Yorker now. Um, what what do you want to see from from Eric Adams in City Hall, or what what's something that would 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 make you feel optimistic? He's obviously saying a lot of interesting things, as Bradley noted about the blockchain and Bitcoin and things like that. Um, but is there something as a as a just as a as a citizen of the city, um, that's important to you that you'd like to see from from Eric Adams. 
Sure. I mean, I think it's it's no secret to anyone. It's just been a tough, tough year and a half for New Yorkers. Um, but if, if you're in the city now, you see that there's an energy, there's an excitement. I think people are eager. There's a, a new page is turning. Um, and I think Bill de Blasio was just kind of a non-existent mayor for, for however long. He just, it was always kind of negative. He never seemed excited about the job. And I think you have New Yorkers who are excited about this next phase. And I, and I think what I would like to see from Eric Adams is to kind of mirror that excitement and energy and optimism um, and bring new ideas and, and new kind of innovations to the city. But, but I also do kind of feel like a voter with, with the rest of the country. Of We can talk about crypto and Bitcoin and, and all these interesting things that would be great. But I think there's all, also a lot of need to do's in the city right now um, with crime and safety and things like that. So as a citizen of the city, you know, I really want someone to come in and feel like they're focused on, on that and keeping us safe here in, in New York. Mikhail, you were, you were just mentioning before we came on that you're coming on into the office today, and that obviously means getting on the subway from where you live. Um, what have you seen in the subway? Is it is it? I take it fairly infrequently, just because I can walk pretty much everywhere. But I'm curious: is it is it getting better? In just in your limited experience, you only go in one area. Um, but but uh, do you feel like like it, it it's sort of getting rounding back to normal? Uh, better as in service, or <laughs> I don't know. I don't know well, either way, just better, just yeah. the experience of it not being something that you have to think about. Just jumping on the subway is just jumping on the subway. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm on the F out in Park Slope, so that's always a little bit of a challenge. Yeah. But no, I think it, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes I'll come in on a Monday and it'll be it'll be packed, and there'll be a ton of people. And on a Wednesday, there'll be no one in, in Union Square. Um, switching trains. So I still feel like it, it's coming, it's back and forth, it's busy, it's not. But, you know, I don't, I think that people seem a little more cautious. I think there is a large homeless population. Um, there's a, you know, I, I definitely, I don't wear my AirPods sometimes walking around if it's, if it's a little later, just because I try to be more aware of my surroundings. But um, I definitely noticed that, that it's, you know, I just keep an extra eye out riding the subway now. Right, right. Um, Bradley, you were talking about how, how your daughter takes a subway and goes out to Brooklyn and does things like that, uh, that's sort of new for her. Um, how is that different from when you were a kid, do you think, and, and you were taking the subway in New York City? I, well, I, know I wasn't really taking it because at that point we had moved uh, out of Brooklyn. Right. Uh, so, but look, I mean, it is still, even with the significant spike in both regular crime and subway crime over the last two years, um, it is still dramatically safer than when we were kids in the 80s and early 90s. Um, so f- from that standpoint, it's much better. But, it's, you know, as listeners of this show know, Lyle and I read the post every single morning. And when we read it today, uh, there was an article about someone that got pushed onto the subway tracks. I forget what station, but somewhere they were OK. Uh, but I said to him, look, you're going to start taking the subway by yourself sometimes, at least uh, in the next year or two. Um, on the platform, if you're by yourself, I want you standing by the wall, not by the not by the edge. Um, so, you know, I don't know if that's just something that every parent says to their kids before they start taking the subway by themselves or a reflection of a lot more mentally unstable people um, kind of being in the transit system right now. But, you know, I did feel the need to say that just a couple hours ago. Yeah. Well, I think both the things you're talking about, just less less time on the headphones, less le- a little more aware of where you're standing on the platform. Those are pretty... Those are pretty basic things that'll help a little bit. Um, 
make people more comfortable. Uh, so this week, uh, Elon Musk was back on Twitter um, causing trouble uh, or at least um, attracting attention. He, he tweeted that he, um, he, uh, he tweeted a poll that, that asked whether he should sell 10 percent of his uh, of his stock holdings, which have zoomed to an all time an all time high now worth more than um, now worth more than the entire uh, U.S. automobile industry, possibly the world. Um, he's worth $318 billion personally. Uh, Bradley, what did, what did you make of that? I thought it was brilliant. Um, so if you think about it, he, he lives in this weird like Hyperloop, which I, I guess pun intended there, since he also owns a company called Hyperloop, um, where his net worth is you know something like $318 billion. A huge amount of that is Tesla. I guess some of it is, is SpaceX and other companies too. And as and Tesla is valued in a way that's just different than any other company, right? It's just the the retail investors love it to a point where fundamentals and basic metrics don't seem to matter at all to the point where Tesla is more valuable than I think all the other car companies combined. So if you're Elon Musk and you know you're not taking a salary, you're not taking a bonus, and you want some cash to fund your lifestyle, uh, you need to sell some shares. However, because this stock is solely based on perception or largely based on perception as opposed to reality, every every new move that could change perception could materially impact the share price. So you want to figure out a way to sell your shares without looking like you've lost confidence or think that the company is overvalued, which it obviously is. So by creating a Twitter poll and saying, Internet, what should I do with this? What should I do with my money? How should I spend it? And the Internet comes back and says, you should sell 10%. And then all of a sudden it's sanctioned. And it's understood, and the odds of there then being a run on the stock when he does so is a lot lower. So it was a brilliant way for him to free up some cash without driving down the share price. I mean, the other the other thing though is at some point, right, the Tesla stock comes to earth, right? It's not gonna it's not gonna be worth more than every company in the world combined. So, you know, can you trust a Twitter poll? I mean, you you've obviously made it doesn't a good- matter it, as long as Twitter trusts Twitter poll. Right. So if the Twitter, Reddit, Robinhood crowd that loves Tesla and kind of buys it and drives the value up regardless of, of any actual facts, if they're OK, then he's OK. Right. Because because his three hundred eighteen billion dollars is largely thanks to them. So he doesn't have to satisfy us or analysts and investment banks or anything else. Uh, he just has to make Twitter happy. Well, it'd just be interesting to see, right? If if the value of the stock is totally based on 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 sort of you know meme investors uh, bidding it up, and whether there is some other constituency there that has been like, well, this is as good a time as any to sell. Um, yeah, I, I maybe, wonder- look, he's always complicated because a lot of what he does feels like it's you know full of shit. But then like there's some substance to it too. Like I used to have a Tesla; it's a really good car. You know, they genuinely make an excellent car or like SpaceX has certainly not colonized Mars, but are they getting rockets, you know, into the galaxy? Yeah. So, you know, it's hard to know with him what's real and what's not. Mikhail, you're a communications person. Um, That's your area of expertise. When you see someone like Elon Musk um, doing the kinds of things he does, do you roll your eyes? Do you think, oh, God, like this is just making my job more difficult when when I need to talk to Bradley about, you know, not doing something or doing something differently? Um, how do you how do you see his uh, his what he does on Twitter and the other things he does to cause trouble? I think, well, I think there's a certain group of CEOs that um, 
will just do what they want to do. But I, I think what Bradley said earlier around, you know, it, it's brilliant. I think that Elon Musk is a lot like Donald Trump. They know exactly what they're doing. A lot of the times, I think the media and the majority of people fall for it time and time over again. You know, Trump tweets something crazy and the headlines are Trump tweets something crazy instead of trying to figure out what the real motive of him doing it is. Um, and, you know, Elon is not just, he didn't, he's not just sitting around in his house thinking, no, maybe I'll just do a Twitter poll on this today. Um, there's a, there's an end to the means. And so, yeah. you know, he's creating a whole, he's kind of, again, it's like shiny ball, shiny ball. Everybody goes chasing after that. And they aren't really looking at what he's really trying to do, which is, you know, get out of, of real scrutiny around what he decided to do with the stock options. So I want to switch back. Uh, I hope I don't give any listeners whiplash, but I want to I want to switch back to Biden. He's come up a little bit in the conversation today. But uh, rather, you mentioned his his poll numbers are at a, uh, an all time low for him, an all time low for any uh, American president not named Donald Trump. Um, but he's passed the infrastructure uh, package. He uh, the job numbers that came out last week were strong. Yeah. Um, what do people want from Joe Biden? I mean, look, we talked about this before on the podcast, which is it, there's a fundamental structural challenge that Joe Biden can't solve and Donald Trump couldn't solve uh, and even Obama couldn't really solve, which is uh, we have a wildly dysfunctional government. We have a society that is both highly inequitable and yet completely connected and visible. So everybody sees everything. And as a result, there's a lot of people who are dissatisfied with their lot in life. And might their lot in life still be exponentially better than if they lived in a, another country or you know another third, third world country or even another first world country? Yeah, absolutely. It certainly might be. But they look at it relative to other Americans and, and see themselves struggling. So people are frustrated. And then politicians run for office promising to be transformational. And the reason why we haven't solved these problems in, in the way they tell it is you just haven't elected the right person yet. And Obama made that case and Trump made that case and Biden sort of around the argument of sort of competency and experience made that case. And the reality is none of them were powerful enough to fix the underlying problems. I mean, they're barely powerful enough to get some stuff through Congress once in a while, uh, let alone sort of the structural problems in both democracy and the economy. And so as a result, voters are always disappointed and pissed off. Right. And unlike, say, a mayor or a governor who at least can get involved in an issue in a tangible way and you can you know, solve a natural disaster or bring down crime or do something that voters can see and feel, most of what the president does is kind of abstract and conceptual. And so as a result, people are really just thinking about it from the standpoint of, this guy said he was gonna solve everything, now he's in office, he hasn't solved it. So already, you know, you're looking at an approval world that once you get past the honeymoon is sort of in the mid 40s at best. And then you start piling on, you know, a variety of failures, right? Obviously, based on the results from last week's elections, voters are really unhappy uh, with the Democrats. The influence of the left has gotten uh, pushed to the point where it has driven independence uh, away and kept a lot of centrist Democrats at home. And so you've got unhappy voters already. Um, he has gotten low marks for certain things like Afghanistan and the border. I don't think they're a huge drag on the numbers, but they probably have some impact. And then look, while the infrastructure bill did pass uh, a couple of days ago, and by the way, congratulations to my brother-in-law, Josh Kaidheimer, for fighting really hard to make that happen and, and winning. So uh, congrats to Josh. Um, but, you know, Biden you know, isn't going to see that much benefit quickly from 
the passage of a bill in Washington or new jobs numbers when all voters have been seeing is Democrats fighting amongst themselves for the last eight months and just look more and after more incompetent than ever. Now, look, with that said, the real opportunity here from the infrastructure bill isn't that the passage of the bill drives his numbers. It's that if he can really be effective with the money and really shovel it out the door and get it into, pro- into projects that hit the streets so there's groundbreakings and ribbon cuttings and new jobs and all of that before the reelect, that's where he really derives the value. However, that will require exceptional management and exceptional change to the way the government normally operates. And I haven't yet seen any evidence that his administration is capable of doing that. So I hope they are, um, but that's what's going to require. How much of this, Michaela, do you think is a messaging problem? I mean, if you look at some of the the, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you look at, so they got the vaccine out and, and you know, the vast majority of Americans have taken it. Uh, people seem to be utterly fixated on, on the relatively small percentage of people who haven't taken it. Um, but still, it's, it's widely available, um, like literally tens of millions of, 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 uh, of Americans are protected. You also have the job numbers, as we talked about. It appears that jobs are, are, are plentiful and, and you know, they're, they're, most companies are having difficulty filling positions. Um, now they have the infrastructure bill passed. Shouldn't they be, shouldn't they be tooting their own horn morally? Shouldn't there be more to, to, to celebrate for the Democrats? Yeah, but yeah, I want to go back quickly. Yeah, go, go back, sorry. I, I do, you know, one, one, I do think this is 100% a messaging problem. I think the Democrats have always been terrible at messaging. Um, to Bradley's point earlier, you know, I think, I don't think Americans understand fundamentally what the powers of the presidency are, right? You, you don't just get to go into office and say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. You have to work with Congress. It's much more complicated than that. But the Republicans have always been very good at just having the 10,000 foot view or the North Star of where they want to go with policies. So it used to drive me crazy in 2016 when you know Democrats would sit around and be like, I can't believe these people want to actually build, think they're going to build a wall. And, and I used to argue, I don't think that every single voter who's voting for Trump thinks they're going to physically build a wall, but I think it represents, he's talking about what they want overall from immigration. We want tougher immigration policies, right? right? So right. I don't think that the Democrats, they're very literal about things. And, you know, I love Hillary Clinton, but I think something that she even struggled with in 2016 was she wouldn't say things that she didn't think that she could quite literally pass and do, which is fair. I get it. You don't want to mislead voters that can treat you that can, you know, you begin to get into tricky territory if you're not coming through on your promises. But I think Bernie Sanders did a really good job of universal college for all, you know, free college, you know, those big things that people were they wanted to get behind that. Um, But I, I just tend to think, and I think I've said this to Bradley before, you know, even the way that he was just talking about Democrats, I don't think that Democrats are the only political party in D.C. that's dysfunctional, right? But I think people pick apart Democrats. I think it's a much more fun game to watch the Democrats have infighting. Um, I think people think they're self-righteous. I'm not going to get into that. But I, sometimes I think the Democrats are held to a different standard than the Republicans are. Um, you know, that's just my personal view of, yes, they did get the vaccine. I just think the Democrats have to do 20 things well and right um, to actually get credit versus the Republicans and Donald Trump had to do one or two things. And, oh, my God, that was so great. You know, I can't believe they pulled that off. So I, I do think that 
we have to take a step back and, and think about why that is the case. I think it's messaging, but I also I also think we hold the Democratic Party to a well, much higher standard. It's mess, but but it, it's messaging and it's also competence, right? So I've talked about this in the podcast before. You know, while uh, I'll give you the example when I worked for for Schumer, um, if there was a judiciary hearing that was likely to get press, I would go with Chuck to the hearing, and invariably. You know, if it's if it's a hearing, it's going to get press. Most members want to be there because they desperately want attention. The Republicans are there on time in their seats. They've got their talking points ready to go. They're all on the same page and they get across a message very effectively. Whereas Democrats are wandering in and out. They're talking over each other. They've all got different angles. So it's totally confusing. And, and that was, you know, 20 years ago. But it, it still said to me like, shit. You know, one side is just much more functional and competent than the other. So that's one reason why. Another let me, reason. Well, why, let, me stop you, let me stop you there for one second, because why is that, though? What 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 is it about? Like, like they're not different kinds of human beings. I mean, what what, what why historically? I mean, you're talking about a 20 year sort of behavioral difference between parties. Do you have a theory on why that is? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it's a few reasons. One is, look, Democrats have a significant advantage in that the vast and Trump was was right about some of this the vast majority of the mainstream media is is heavily pro-democratic right um, and that's a huge advantage but at the same time if the ivory tower and the think t- most of the think tanks and academia and the elites and the reporters are all basically identifying as Democrats you've got a lot of smart independently minded people who not only have their own thoughts and ideas, but all want to be seen as the smartest person in the room. And that's true for the reporters, that's true for the senators, for their staffers, for everyone. And so they're more interested in showing how smart they are and how clever they are uh, than getting across a very specific message. And so as a result, everyone's trying to one-up each other with some new angle. And the net result is just total chaos and confusion. So the same personality that in some ways um, allows Democrats to succeed in certain fields, and I think ultimately to be often more open-minded and tolerant than Republicans are, um, also kind of cripples them because they uh, kind of can't help themselves and their own worst base instincts and, and insecurities tend to capture the day every single time. Um, there was a lot that uh, we were going to try to cover in this episode, and we were going to get to climate but I think we're going to hold climate for its own episode, if that's all right with you, Bradley, for next week, because I think it's it's too big to just come into at the end here. And I want to I want to close with a kind of related conversation, which is um, there's sort of some Trump, uh, not news exactly, but some analysis that that was coming around this this week, a, a really good piece in The Atlantic by Connor Friedersdorf that was about why Ron DeSantis is the kind of the best shot at, at stopping Trump. Um, there was an interesting Ross Douthat, Douthat, Douthat um, column in the New York Times, which I know you didn't read, Bradley, um, talking about uh, the opportunity for um, for Republicans to take advantage of sort of Democratic weakness without relying on Donald Trump. Um, so I have a question. Uh, obviously, both of you, what is as you see it, the best opportunity for stopping Trump from winning in 2024? Is it from within the Republicans? Is it the Democrats coming up with either an alternative to Biden-Harris or somehow reviving Biden-Harris in a way that feels different? Is it a third party? Is it an investigation or a prosecution? Or is there something I'm not thinking of? Like, where is the best opportunity? Yeah, I think they're all factors. So let, let's just kind of analyze and rank them, right? So the 
the, the best thing would be if, if Trump is just physically unable to run, which I think in his case means not alive. Uh, but we can't count on that. Uh, hmm. the, the, the second is if he has been if he's in prison or under indictment and is prohibited from running. Uh, not that he still probably wouldn't try, uh, but but that would be the second best. The third best would be uh, Biden and Harris getting their shit together and being effective presidents. And look, it's always going to be close for all the reasons that I just outlined a couple of minutes ago, um, but ultimately still maintaining their edge. And look, most of the time, incumbent presidents get reelected. They, they tend to only not do so if they're in a particularly bad economy, which is what happened to George H.W. Bush in 1992, for example, or they're just uh, an anomaly in every way like Trump. And Trump still only lost because he fucked up COVID on top of everything else. So if Biden and Harris can get back to some semblance uh, of success, and that might even mean a 46 percent approval rate, doesn't have to be 56 percent. Uh, that's the best thing, right? Because you can't, then you're not relying on the Republicans to police themselves or a third party movement or anything else. The fourth would be, you know, if the Republicans could get behind a candidate other than Trump, a single candidate, and that was the point of that article about DeSantis in the Atlantic, which is, you know, even though none of us might want DeSantis to be president, we would still all gladly vote for him over Trump every day of the week. And so, you know, someone like him. However, you know, I think that kind of defies reality because, like, there was a piece in the Washington Post or somewhere today about how Mitch McConnell hates Trump, you know, w- w- blames Trump for January 6th, everything else, and yet is still kissing his ass and terrified of him, right? So, like, Donald Trump is such a dominant force uh, on the Republican side of the aisle and in the media that the notion that the Republicans are going to find another candidate and use that to take out Trump or run a third party, um, I think relying on that is is really, really dangerous. Um, and then your last part was an independent bid. Look, this comes up all the time. It, it just depends on who that independent bid um, would take from, right? The, I, I, it's unlikely that we're going to see someone emerge that did like what Perot did, call it in, in 92, where he got 22% or whatever it was. Um, but look, you know, Ralph Nader in 2000 took one or two percent from Gore, and that was enough for for Bush to win the election. So yeah, maybe there is um, you know some other type of Republican, conservative, whatever that runs and does well in enough swing states to to put Biden over the top. Like for example, Evan McMullen ran for president in 2016. Uh, he's a army vet and kind of a political reformer from Utah, kind of an Andrew Yang type, um, and did really well in Utah in the presidential election. But it didn't matter because Trump was still going to win Utah no matter what. But if there was a version of McMullen that did well in Colorado or Arizona or Michigan or Pennsylvania or Florida, whatever it is, that one or two two percent could make a difference, but you know that's all stuff at the edges, and that's the kind of stuff where every political strategist and wannabe political strategist, you know, likes to show how brilliant they are by whatever strategy they have. The reality is, if you want to prevent Trump in twenty four, get your shit together and do a better job over the next couple of years. Michaela, where are you putting your money on on stopping Trump? I mean, I, I kind of disagree with Bradley's point of, you know, Biden and Harris have to do a, a more effective job of governing. You look at what they've done so far. They've rolled out the vaccine. Their child tax credit has quite literally, pull, you know, almost done away with poverty in the United States. Bradley, you work on childhood hunger. There's there's no arguing the impact that that's had on the country. They just passed a, a massive bipartisan infrastructure bill. 
you know, yes, it's been a messy few weeks in Washington, but I think to, to say that they're not governing effectively um, is is wrong. I, I don't know, you know, you, you compare that to what Trump did. I think it gets back to the point of nobody's talking about that. And I think the left is talking about issues that um, most of America doesn't want to talk about. We're spending more time talking about a lot of these social issues instead of the, you know, it's the economy, stupid, instead of things like the child tax credit, instead of things like the infrastructure bill. Right. So I think that the Democrats have to start talking more about what they're actually doing and stop getting pulled into. I, I do agree with Bradley on this point that they get whiplash around by what liberal Twitter is wanting them to say. I hope if they learn one thing from the recent election, it's to stop doing that. Um, people don't want to hear about a lot of the things that might be popular on Twitter. Um, but when it comes to stopping Trump, you know, I, I also think if the Republicans are smart, they would look at a candidate like Youngkin and realize that they can get away with a lot of Trump's policies, the things that Trump represented. But if they, you know, if they put a different face on it, they can win back a lot of the voters, um, you know, suburban moms and others who didn't couldn't stomach voting for Trump, um, but would come back to the Republican Party for a candidate like Youngkin. So I think if you did run, I don't know that, you know, Youngkin's going to be the presidential candidate um, next time. But I think the Republicans, you know, should think about it could be a slam dunk if we ran someone who was kind of, you know, uh, you know, a wolf in sheep's clothing and would make people feel comfortable with it. Um, but it's not Trump. Right. I think that's a perfect place to leave it. Um, until next week, Mikhail, thanks so much for joining. Um, and uh, Bradley, do you want to sign off since it's your podcast? <laughs> uh, okay. So on behalf of Hugo and Michaela, I am signing off. Uh, this is going up today, Tuesday, November 9th. Or is today? Yeah, that's right. And then on Thursday, we'll have uh, Jamie Rogozinski, who is the founder and head of Wall Street Bet. So uh, hopefully two good episodes for you guys this week and uh, hope you enjoyed it. Okay. Oh, oh, sorry. Oh, always forget this. Please rate and review us. Uh, if you have feedback, just go to firewall.media and let us know. Um, we would be eager to uh, incorporate your ideas to the show. Thank you. <laughs>